0: Hey there, greetings. Welcome to the Business of Agriculture Podcast. It's me, your host, Damian Mason, on video as well as audio. That's right. This year we made this a YouTube channel. It is just go to Damian Mason channel and check out the playlist, and you'll find the Business of Agriculture podcast. I would like you to do that and please subscribe while you're there. Also, listen to this on audio and all the different audio formats from SoundCloud to you know Apple, iTunes, wherever you get your podcast. Got a great episode for you today because I have a great guest. His name is Howard Halderman. He is the president of Halderman Real Estate Services out of Wabash, Indiana, but they actually work in 19 states. And we're going to talk about land values, cash rent values, a look ahead, where things are going, everything farmland values is what we're covering today. Say hello, Mr. Halderman.
1: Good afternoon, or good morning,
0: or good evening,
1: or good middle of the night, whatever day you listen
0: to your podcast. (laughs) That's right. Whoever, whenever they do. He's been a guest before. If you remember about two years ago, he was a guest and we talked about real estate. And I decided it was time to bring him back because there's so much that's changed. And we got the whole COVID effect. We've got the whole interest rate effect. We've got a lot of trade agreements and we've got the election. So when you're talking about the most valuable thing that we have in real in agriculture is generally our real estate so that's what we're going to be talking about before we get to the beginning of his questions we're going to also remind you that this episode like so many others of the business of agriculture is brought to you by my good friends at Harvest Profit Harvest Profit is a software solution for your agricultural enterprise that works As hard as you do you've got inputs and outputs and so many dollars so much capital at work why not have a software solution that makes your job easier but also makes your enterprise more profitable go to harvestprofit.com for your free 14-day trial all right mr halderman was on two years ago and we talked about real estate but there's so much new stuff to cover He's here to give you all this information and insight. You know, you drive around in agriculture, you look out the window, what do you see? Farmland, it's our most valuable asset. So what's it mean? Where's it going, et cetera, et cetera. And if you're wondering whether you can listen to Mr. Halderman, I'll let you go ahead and uh, hear from him. He's the president of this farm management and auction company known as Halderman Real Estate. Uh, and he's gonna tell you about what they do. Mr. Halderman.
1: Good afternoon again, or good day, I should say, uh, depending on when you listen to your podcast, but Halderman Farm Management, Halderman Real Estate Services, we are based in Wabash, Indiana, North Central Indiana. We work in 19 different states. We manage farm properties. So if you happen to own a property that you lease out, we, you could be a client of ours. We also broker farm properties. We sell farms privately. We sell them at public auction. And then the kind of the the third service area for us is appraisals, and we do a lot of farm appraisals for loans, for estate planning, and the like. So, it's kind of a three-legged stool for us. We provide all three service areas, and they really work well together, because if you're going to be a good property manager, you probably need to know what the asset's worth. Well, that's called farm appraisal. If you're going to do farm management and farm appraisal, you probably could step into the farm brokerage business, because you have to have the same license for all three. So, Damien, when we talk about farmland values or, or rental trends, a lot of my comments are coming from the fact that we, we're based in Indiana. We work heavily in Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, and Illinois, but I also have a perspective over a 19-state area as well. So, yeah, we're talking mainly about core eastern Corn Belt stuff, but we can talk about broader uh, land values and rents as well.
0: Yeah. So if you're out there, you're an orchard uh, uh, agriculturalist in California, you're going to say, man, I don't know if this applies. Well, some of the same principles are going to apply. So we're going to talk about investors. We're going to talk about legislation. We're going to talk about bankruptcies. We're going to talk about the, the debt to equity issues. These things still apply whether you own your agricultural real estate in Colorado or in the Eastern Corn Belt. But yeah, just so that our listeners know uh, this off of the uh, Halderman real estate services website, 693 farms managed 238,000 acres that this uh, entity Halderman real estate services manages in 19 States. They sold 110 farms or 13,000 acres, a hundred million dollars in the year, 2020 and you've done 900 appraisals. So I would say you have a pretty good finger on the pulse of what's going on in agricultural real estate. And uh, if you're not from the areas that they work principally in still, stick with us because I think much of the information is going to extrapolate. All right. Give me the overview, my friend.
1: So it's been interesting. We we talked two years ago and, you know, you might say, or I could say, well, Damien, nothing has changed. You know, farmland values are really largely the same. And in the Eastern Corn Belt, that would be a very true statement. Uh, In fact, farmland values have been pretty consistent for the last five or six years. Mm-hmm. And it's been interesting, we, we peaked in late 13, early 14, was the all time high of the farmland marketplace. And of course, that's coming after the high commodity prices that we saw in the late 2000s, early 2010s, and driving land values up to these all time levels. And then we saw commodity prices break. And that led to a fall in 2014, 2015 of maybe 10 to 15, maybe 20%. Now, that's true in the corn belt from Colorado to Columbus, Ohio, it would not apply outside of those areas, because I know other areas didn't have quite that kind of decline. But we certainly did here in the Corn Belt. And that resulted in land values maybe being 15, 20% lower than what they were at the high. But since that time, Damien, 2015 forward, we have been in a very sideways channel, and you might ask why? You know, why why would land values remain stable? Because we have seen falling farm incomes until the last three years, and one of the reasons is we've looked at a very limited supply of farms for sale, and that's been for the last five or six years. Uh, farmland doesn't often trade hands; usually, it's two and a half, maybe three percent of the farms sell on a given year, and we've actually been at seventy-five percent of that rate. So. Less number of farms for sale, lower supply.
0: You're saying we've been at 75% of historical in terms of farmland available at, for sale compared to- yes. Okay. And when did that, when did that shortage that, because I, I read in, in preparing for this, that our supply, our inventory was light. When did the inventory become light on available farmland?
1: You know, the last year that we saw a large number of farms for sale was in the second half of 2012. Okay. And you would say, well, why in the world would that be? And that would be due to an outside driver called the potential for capital gains taxes to go up. Mm-hmm. Potential, because they never did change. Right. But the potential was, and at the, you think if back to August of 12, President Obama was highly favored to win re-election. The thought was we might be looking at a Democratic Congress and therefore capital gains taxes, they were being talked about going up higher rates. And we had a lot of landowners call us starting in August and say, I want to sell and close this year under the current capital gains tax rules so that I guarantee me that lower rate in case they go up in the future. And so we did a three to four auctions per week from August through December of that year. It was crazy. And and so that was the last time I saw a huge, not not huge, but a large number of sales, more than normal, come onto the marketplace. Since that time period, you know, farmland peaked the next year, uh, and and really started to decline. And a lot of landowners said, "Yeah, debt to asset ratio in farmland is fifteen percent." So it isn't like there was a lot of debt out there at a high interest rate that was causing farmers or bankers to force farmers to sell something. Mm -hmm. So basically they held the asset and rents came down a little bit, but if you put it in a historical perspective, land values are still higher than every year prior to 2010. Rents are still higher than every year prior to 2010. So if I'm a landowner in that marketplace, eh, I don't need to sell it. I don't have to sell it. I think I think there was a study done by Iowa State a year or two ago, and 80% of the land in Iowa has no debt. Anymore.
0: Yeah, now, so, just to put that, and put that perspective, okay, a couple of things. When I asked the last time that we had a big bunch of land for sale, you said 2012, you and I both keep up with this more than many of our listeners. I always bear in mind that some of our listeners were maybe just budding young professionals back in 2012. You and I are seasoned veterans. But the other part of it is, uh, I've got a friend in Evanston, Illinois, that listens to every one of my podcasts. Hello, Jeff. Appreciate you being a fan. And he's going to say, okay, what was the driver back then? Five to seven years of the record high commodity. We'd call it a super cycle. Um, so it wasn't just that the capital gains thing. It was that we thought we were at a high watermark in 2012 or 2013 sure. of, man, this land is worth two and a half times what it was just, what, maybe 10 to 20 years previous, right? Yeah, oh, we, five or six uh, years previous. Yeah, so we two saw a time. Yeah, we saw a two to a doubling to a, a two point five uh, delta, right? Uh, um, uh, on that, so that was a big deal. And then you're telling me that we kind of lost a little bit. Certainly, values uh, came down. Let's call it twenty percent for our type of properties that we're talking about. And then we moved into stable, stable place. And you know, we talk about us being. In Indiana, but uh, you know we work for clients all over, 300 and what three hundred and fifty thousand actual acres, which isn't that many three hundred and fifty thousand acres are really what we're talking about in the whole country there's about three hundred fifty thousand that do all of the hard work of growing the corn, the beans, the wheat, the Milo, etc right okay exactly so putting that in perspective, you just said eighty percent of those acres of Iowa, for instance, have no debt, so we've got not only stable land values, but if there's no money against it. What's the hurry to sell? Is that the idea? Is that why we're just sitting here with not much inventory? Exactly. And if you go back to the, the late
1: 70s, early 80s, the debt to asset ratio was closer to 25 to 30%. So there was a much higher percentage of farms back in those days, and farms were much smaller, but a much higher percentage that when, and with interest rates at 15% plus, yeah. they basically struggled to remain viable. And they had to sell farmland or give it back to the bank and the bank sold it. So you had a, a really an increase in supply mm-hmm. in 81, 82, 83, all the way through 86 that went into a marketplace with pretty low commodity prices and not as much government subsidy support to offset those low commodity prices. And so as a result, it was a, it was a pretty negative marketplace that all excess supply went into and we saw a 60% decline. Well, what happened this time? Yeah, we saw some commodity price drop, uh, but yields continued to be pretty strong. Mm -hmm. Commodity prices, while they fell, if you think back the last few years, there's been an opportunity to sell $4 corn Mm -hmm. sometime every year for the last three or four years. Crop insurance with all the various coverages we can access today, are so much better than what we had back in the 1980s. And interest rates are a lot less. So your interest expense is less. So when you put all that together, while we weren't making as much money, while farm incomes did decline quite a bit, we're still able to remain profitable. Or you know, And basically the erosion that occurred the last few years was not in land values. It was a little bit more on the working capital side. So then if you, I think I looked at the most recent USDA projected net farm income for 2020 and it's up again this year, that's two straight now three straight years of farm incomes going up. Why market facilitation payments, CFAP payments payments to offset the coronavirus yep. payments that the government has put out there. In addition to all of this late season rally that we've had in commodity prices this year, And it's not just selling this year's crop. It's selling next year's crop at profitable levels. But that's happened each of the last three or four years. So when I look back, you know, farm incomes, while not great, weren't tragic either. And so I think that's what's led to that
0: stability. Okay, we've said, you've said a lot and I've got uh, a bunch of questions. First off, I always like it to reiterate some numbers that I think are historic or interesting that a person that works in the business of agriculture then can, can have as a point of reference. You said that in say 1980, and if you work in ag, you know that the farm crisis happened basically from '81 to '86, but it didn't really get good until the mid '90s, really, right? right. The, oh yeah, yeah. The, the bleeding, the, the bleeding, the bleeding, and the death was from '81 to '86 or so, and then we put a tourniquet on ourselves and limped around, and still were nearly dead for another five to ten years after that. You said the debt-to-equity ratio out there in the countryside was about 30% in that that time frame. Am I right? Is that the number you used? 25 to 30, yes. And then what's the debt-to-equity right now in the countryside? 13, 14. Okay, so about half. Um, I just want to make sure that our, our listeners kind of can appreciate that. Sure. You said another thing about um, an erosion of working capital. For the person that's listening to this, that's a great salesperson or drives a spray coop or uh, is out there, uh, you know, doing their business in cranberry production, they say, man, I've never understood that. What is working capital and why does it matter? So working capital is the cash, the liquid cash or assets that you could
1: tap into in a minute's notice. And, and so, when we went through that golden era of agriculture, 2007 to 2012, working capital, cash reserves, really built up. We were paying off our debt, but at the same time, we were saving money. And yeah, we bought some new equipment, but still, the, that cash pile grew. And working capital, really, I mean, in an accounting sense, it's your current assets minus your current liabilities. So, it's what you owe this year taken away from what you currently have as cash. So you can think corn, soybeans, you know, any crop you're selling this year would be effectively a current asset and cash in the bank, um, less your expenses that you owe this year. And that could also be reflective of, of debt payments. So that working capital has gone uh, down quite a bit the last few years, because we have this pile of cash and it's been eroded because we haven't made as much money or some in some years made no money and, and lost a little bit. And so that, that working capital really has gone down. Um, but if you start to look at the USDA net farm income numbers, the last three years, we've incrementally seen farm incomes creep up a little bit. Market facilitation payments, the chance to sell $4 corn in May, a couple of years, um, yields that were ended up better than expected, when you think about a year ago and all the delayed planning that we had, you know, we were planting corn in June here in Wabash County, Indiana, which is not ideal, but it's made a really good deal. And so that combined with that the little higher prices due to that, plus the market facilitation payments, well, you put it all together and you could eke out a little bit of a profit or not lose that much. So, you know, those are the reasons why we've seen stability. Uh, the other thing is farmers don't want to sell. Um, you know, majority of our farmland buyers, 60, 70% uh, in our analysis, the sales that we do, remain farmers. So they're the ones that really want to hold on to, and they know that farm's only going to sell once in their lifetime. So when it comes up, I need to take advantage to own it. Likewise, I don't want to give anything up. And so if they're not forced, if their hands are not forced, they'll do other things to erode working capital maybe sell some equipment that might be excess, do something, get an off-farm job, those things to supplement their farm income versus selling any land.
0: Yeah, so you described a lot of stuff there and we're going to come back. uh, I'm going to take a little break here and talk about our sponsor. And we're going to be talking about bankruptcies, the farm programs, the reality of farm programs, how those numbers have affected us because you've already given a couple of examples. And we're going to talk about my favorite topic of all time, Got to buy land. They ain't making any more of it. But before I do that, I want to remind you, dear listener and viewer, that again, I'd like you to subscribe to this, both the audio and the video format on my YouTube channel or uh, wherever you get your audio podcasts. And I'd like you now to take a little moment here with me and pour yourself a glass of milk because the Georgia Agricultural Commodity Commission for Milk would like to remind you there's nine essential nutrients in milk, including vitamin A, which helps with immune system health. Is a pandemic a good time to be switching off of the stuff that helps your immune system? I don't think so. Howard Holderman is coming to me from his basement right now because his daughter got the COVID and he's got a quarantine. So he's all about, yes, drink the milk, stay healthy. By the way, sip up up. Also a reminder that this episode is brought to you by Harvest Profit, the software solution for your ag enterprise. Go to harvestprofit.com and use their product for 14 days free, you'll like it. It will help your company, your ag entity, be more profitable. Okay, Howard Haldeman. You explained what working capital is, why it matters. And one, uh, an ag enterprise, or any enterprise, is having to eat into their working capital because the returns aren't there, they'll go to their assets and then start leveraging that. And that's what we saw in like the 1980s when we saw 25 to 30% debt to equity ratios and debt to asset ratios. And we're not seeing that now. Is that because, as I would say, farm payments. We have thrown a lot of federal money since 2018, maybe even 16, at the farm sector talk to me.
1: We certainly have. And I would say yes, to answer your question, the government support for market facilitation payments in 18 and 19, the coronavirus payments that we received, and for lack of a better term, uh, CFAP payments that we've gotten this year, uh, have been a huge bonus to agriculture in the sense that they have basically made up for the net loss that we've seen on a per acre basis, maybe in corn and soybeans, uh, they've made up the difference. And and so that's where, uh, you know, the Congress basically issued some money to offset the loss of price in soybeans primarily, a little bit on corn, uh, due to the trade wars with China. Uh, Now, this year was due to the big dip in commodity prices we saw in March and April due to the coronavirus. Um, that was, you know, in my mind, somewhat short-lived in terms of the actual market dip, because by the time we got to August, corn and soybean prices started to go up due to the weather event in Iowa, uh, combined with growing demand out in, in, uh, from China for both corn and soybeans. So, uh, I think we find ourselves in a place today where it's a demand-driven market. Um, prices are at levels now that are profitable for both corn and beans. And in addition, we're looking at these, these government outlays. So, One question I would have if I'm a producer is, will those continue? Uh, Obviously, we went through an election. We have a new president, most likely, and a totally new administration and a different way they're going to look at farm programs. And they may come and say, hey, you know, with the debt that we've incurred as a country, uh, we can't afford to subsidize agriculture the way we have been. And so I would anticipate as a farm producer, if we can continue to get our crop insurance subsidized, we may not expect much else. Um except for the PLC and the ARC program payments that are already in existence in the Farm Bill.
0: Wait a minute. And, remember, wait, remember, we have people that are gonna say what do those mean? Just so you no. know, just you know, dear listener and viewer, uh like it or not, the United States Department of Agriculture has been involved in managing our output, or at least managing our farmers, or subsidizing and somewhat having the, um, you know, Adam Smith talked about the magic hand. Well, we don't really have the magic hand. We have the USDA hand that does involve themselves, like it or not, to guarantee uh, a dependable and abundant food supply. We've seen programs since since Howard Horman and I were born, I can't name all of them. They usually have initials, but the current ones... The two that just came out now are talking about coronavirus food assistance. They say that that's just number one and number two, and that was just the year 2020. But the other ones you're speaking of have been in place now for five to 10 years, and they were replacements to the ones that were in 10 to 20 years prior to that. Those are programs that you think will stay, and they will give a farm operation money per acre period, right? Those programs were written into the five-year farm
1: bill in 2018, so, uh, and they are basically in place to subsidize agriculture if there is a significant drop in revenue or a significant drop in price, much lower <laughs> levels than than what we've uh, uh, than, where, than where we are today. If prices stay around four dollar corn and ten dollar soybeans, none of those payments would happen. Um, so, those are written into the farm bill. I don't think Congress is going to open up and change the farm bill until they get closer to 2023. Um, so as a result, uh, but these, these ad hoc payments, so market facilitation payments to offset the trade war with China or the, the coronavirus payments that came this year, those are the ones I think likely we can't plan on uh, and may not see in 2021.
0: And we will see because I, I always try to make sure that our listener, we don't, we don't, we're not hiding stuff. We're pro-agriculture people, but we'll admit there are subsidies that happen here. We subsidize, the taxpayers do subsidize crop insurance. Why is that done? Because they wanna make sure that the farm that gets washed out in Iowa because of the derecho or in Nebraska because of hundred year floods, can come back again next year and be a supplier to the food system. So we will still see the uh, crop insurance. We will probably see a couple of other things, but I agree with you, $51 billion was thrown at agriculture this year in terms of federal monies. And that does a lot to prop up these land values. Are we gonna see a 10% drop next year because these programs go away?
1: No, I don't think so. Because Because commodity prices will be enough. I can sell my 21 corn and soybeans today at prices that are profitable, irrespective of government subsidies. So yes, I, I, I don't think we'll see a 10% drop. I the don't think, is, you know, what What are interest rates going to do? Because that's a factor in the land values right. and interest rates likely remain low, at least for, you know, when depends on what kind of expert you want to talk to, but they're all talking a year or two of low interest rates. Mm-hmm. So if interest rates remain low, that has a double effect to farmland. One is if I'm borrowing money, my interest cost is less. The other is if I'm an investor and I'm thinking about where to invest my money and I can buy CDs at half a percent Mm -hmm. or I can invest in farmland at two and a half to three percent cash yield. Why wouldn't I invest in farmland and at the same time get the potential for increased uh, asset values over time?
0: Okay, now you're bringing me to another example. And before we get to bankruptcies, we talked about farm programs. We both agree that farm programs are not going to be as rich as they were. And uh, not. you know, I've heard the argument that it was Trump because he's pro-farmer and he wanted to cement that. And I'm like, he's got their votes anyhow. I don't think that that was necessarily it. And the coronavirus food assistance program, et cetera. Um, and also, we've never seen the deal where a government program is announced, seconded, Six months later. And then after the seconded program, meaning CFAP2, was announced in July, we saw a 20% rise in commodity prices from then till harvest, essentially. Am I right? Right. Yeah, like from July till uh, Halloween, we saw like a 20. So it's like, hey, we're throwing a bunch of money at you. Oh, guess we need to do that because your prices all went up. So uh, Well, but nobody predicted that, Damien. No. And
1: it, you know that it, if, if we all knew what commodity prices were gonna do, you and I would not be on this podcast. We'd just trade our own book every day. There you go. And, and so it, it's one of those things where no one predicted and China does a pretty good job of remaining elusive on their stocks of corn and soybeans, wheat and other things. And, you know, all of a sudden, their price of corn in, in country went above $9 a bushel, which is ridiculous when you can buy it from the United States at, at the time at three fifty dollars a bushel. Yeah. Um, and so that was a leading indicator back in July that they were short corn. They're building their hog herd, their swine herd back up from their uh, disease problems a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. And so you put all that together, their demand, this is a demand-driven market that no one foresaw. Uh, and, and the farmer is benefiting from it. In hindsight, would say, yeah, we shouldn't have had round two of CFAP
0: payments. Yeah, but they, like I said, it's an unheard of situation. And also, just to the listener, that, and I'm not a commodity trading expert, but I've been around enough to know that you generally do not see a 20% spike in commodity prices heading into harvest. It's generally no. flat to down during that time. You well, could- it was the
1: combination of the derecho, which that was a significant yield hit, combined with the demand from China and other places.
0: Yeah. You mentioned investors. Um, I've always made the crack. Uh, that when I go to uh, an auction that maybe Halderman real estate services is holding, um, I'm going to, on my name tag, I'm not going to put Damian Mason. I'm going to write investor from Chicago because my favorite thing among the, the Midwestern uh, agricultural people is, do you hear about who bought that farm over there? Who paid all that money on the farm? I heard it was an investor from Chicago. It's my favorite. It's my favorite thing. So Investor from Chicago is always the alleged person that bid up the price on that land somewhere in the Midwest in the corn belt. According to this the information that you prepared that I studied about 40% of farmland is owned by investors. Is that nationwide or is that in your book?
1: Uh, that would be in the sales that we do. Uh, 40% of the buyers happen to be what I would call absentee landowners meaning that they don't farm the land they purchase themselves. So somebody like you or me. Okay. And honestly, of that 40%, a majority of them are people who live in these local communities in Indiana. Uh, they are not New York, Wall Street investment funds. Not investors there are from some, Chicago. Well, there are some, you know, you get the, some people from Chicago that come out with 1031 exchange money or Indianapolis, yeah. um, less so Fort Wayne or something like that. But Certainly, uh, the investor market is, is alive and well for farmland uh, because it generates a higher than, uh, it's a, from a fixed income asset, it generates a pretty good return from a cash yield standpoint, gives you upside potential in land values, and it's also a hedge against inflation. And so if you really think with all this government stimulus that has gone out the door this year, that we are looking at inflationary times a year or two down the road, yeah. there are some investors more on the institutional side think pension plan, think college endowment fund mm-hmm. that would say, I want to be invested a little bit in farmland because it's a really good hedge against it in inflationary times.
0: Yeah. So you just did a good job of saying here's the, and you and I both are, I mean, I own farmland uh, and and you do too. So um, I would say um, it's got some security. Uh, I like being able to go out and look at it. Um, I, uh, can vary some of the things and control uh, factors that you can't, if you own a mutual fund, you ain't got no control over it. I can manipulate and control maybe the productivity or what happens or the operator or what's what's planted on it, et cetera. It could be a solar farm. It could be a tree farm. It could be whatever. There's those things. You said hedge against inflation, which we both agree that there's going to be inflation because you can't throw three trillion or $6 trillion out the window right. of Washington DC without just expecting there to be that. Um, you said something in our last episode, two years ago, that I thought was interesting. If you're an investor, you're saying, why would I want something like cranks out a 3.5% return? And your answer would be, well, when interest rates are low, a 3.5% guaranteed return is pretty darn good. You said something also two years ago that I I never forgot. Generally, it never goes vacant. If I owned a strip mall, and we know what's happening right now with online commerce and coronavirus is depleting some of the retail landscape, a chunk of Iowa farmland never goes without returning something that year. It generally is always gonna be operated and give you return. That's one of the things that you would say is a, a reason to own it, right? Certainly, and you are exactly right. In farmland, when you talk about
1: commercial space, commercial real estate, and you're talking to an investor in that world, the term I use is vacancy rate. And if you think about a hotel, if you think about a strip mall, all of them have some percentage of a vacancy rate. And in farmland, you're exactly right, Damien. that vacancy rate is zero. Unless you have a property that is so environmentally contaminated, or it is guaranteed to flood every year, it's going to get farmed. Yeah. And it, if you have no debt on that land, 80% of the land in Iowa has no debt. Mm-hmm. If you have no debt on that land, it will be profitable. It will pay, pay you in rent more than your cost of ownership. Now, depending on your debt level, maybe you have you know, need more rent to subsidize that to pay your your debt payments, but generally speaking it 's going to rent at a profit now, in terms of return on value, it might be two and a half to three percent, and that was higher two years ago uh, than what it is now and you may have listeners out there that say well gosh that 's not all that great a return uh, I, can, I you know I did better than that in the in the stock market the last six months yeah you, you did. Um, keep in mind though from farmland standpoint doesn't trade often really holds value very well over a 35 to 50 year time horizon farmland goes up four to five percent a year in value on average so if you take that two and a half three percent cash return and add it to a four to five percent asset value return all of a sudden your total return is six and a half to eight that you're in and you're out damien like or trucks coming off the production line really year after year after year it probably is a pretty steady and oh by the way you can go out and walk on it which is something you mentioned
0: something that something that uh, it means something to a lot of people that buy into it Uh, Two quick things. I know we're getting long, but this is a great episode. Remember, I love it because everybody in air culture has a tie to the land, understands land, was raised on the land, uh, thinks that we need to own land, whatever. So that's why we've got to spend time on this. You and I both uh, are looking ahead and about inflation. You see then your prediction for next year's real estate values, stable or up a little bit? If
1: I'm calling it today, looking at commodity prices where they are today, I would predict farmland goes up anywhere from 2 to 5% in 2021. Uh, then, we're looking at potential for positive commodity prices.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: All you can do in budgeting is budget the trendline yields. Mm-hmm. So if you take your your five-year APH on your farm or trendline yields at the current commodity prices, uh, knowing what we know at low interest rates, I think farmland values go up next year. A lot of things can change that, Damien. You know, we, we could see China just close us off and we crater the whole trade deal and all of a sudden commodity prices drop significantly. You could look at a situation where we have major weather problems and in certain areas and all of a sudden farmland values may go down in that area, but maybe commodity prices in general aren't affected.
0: And we so a lot of a, things could happen. And we could see a weather issue in South America, which tends to actually have them more than we do, which then is positive for uh, price positive for us. And, we and that also- has been
1: happening over the last month. Brazil's looked at delayed plantings and that, that has had an impact
0: on our soybean prices. Two things that we're gonna hit before we close out the door here, Mr. Halderman. First off, the uh, person that uh, listens to NPR driving down the road that um, maybe is not agriculturally educated, um, they're, they're good, they're well-meaning, they're nice folks, but they repeat stuff that they hear. And I'm just gonna throw it of them at you but all these small farmers are going bankrupt because of those factory farms, that industrial agriculture. We talked to me for a second about the reality of bankruptcy and what's happening because I hear the stories. I have people that ask me on airplanes. You're a farm guy. I heard that all these farmers are going bankrupt. These poor, small farms can't make it answer that. Well, I think if you go back
1: a couple of years, there was a headline in the wall street journal that said farm bankruptcies are double. Uh, 2008, so 10 years later, 2018, yeah. farm bankruptcies double what they were in 2008, and somebody sent me that that headline, and I thought back, and I thought, you know, I, I don't recall 2008 being all that bad a year in ag, and, and so when, when you look at the actual numbers in 2018, there were 500, I think 498 bankruptcies filed in agricultural operations across the entire United States, 500. Five hundred, And that was double. That was, in fact, double 2008, because in 2008, we only had 250. Yeah. So it was an accurate headline. But to put it in perspective, in 1987, and you talked about the 80s and the, the challenges there, in 1987, there were 5,700 plus bankruptcies filed in agriculture. So, while we've gotten up to, I think, 623 in 2019.
0: We're about so one-ninth one, one uh, of what we were during the bad
1: 80s. Exactly. And, and so, it, it requires a degree of perspective and comparison. And I, you know, I started in 1988. So, I, I recall those times very well. And it, it, we're nothing like those times. Nothing. And haven't been.
0: I agree. Okay. One other thing that I hear, I hear it from ag people particularly, and you hear it at every one of your auctions and your auctioneers have maybe even said it. Land, they ain't making any more of it. Your reaction?
1: They might not be making any more of it in Indiana. Uh, In fact, in Indiana, it might be declining in total acreage because we develop some new subdivisions every year. Uh, So that's true. In developed parts of the world. However, there are new lands being developed in Brazil and in other parts of South America. There are some new lands being developed in the former Soviet Union, Russia, and some of those areas.
0: Ukraine, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, et cetera, et cetera, right? And you got all those little plots
1: in China that, as the Chinese start to create larger, and when I say little, we're talking like an acre or half an acre, Damien. Yeah. Uh, and they start to make them actually efficient farming operations, not only is there necessarily no more new land, but when we double production on the same acres we had, that's effectively like doubling your acres. Yeah. And there are some places, that's not going to happen in the Corn Belt, but it certainly will happen in some of these developing countries where they start to use new hybrid technology, new, the new technologies we've developed here in the States. So there always can be in you know, new land, as I would call it, Um, And I'm not advocating that we tear down rainforests or anything like that. Um, I would argue against doing anything like that. But um, more likely, because of the production increases in some of those developing countries, that's more the creation of new land or the effect of new land that we'll see out there.
0: I am so glad you had that because while even you are in the land selling business, it would be, it would be one of those things you could say. And then somebody would say, well, I guess he's right. I better buy this because there's not more of it. The reality is because of technology and technological innovations that we've done in agriculture, we don't need any more land because we're getting two and three and six times more out of each acre than we did 50, 100, 125 years ago. And then, as you also said, there are countries that were very underutilized take Ukraine or, uh, you know, Brazil, for instance, um, that are actually opening up new acres. So it's, uh, it's, I'm glad you said that. But it doesn't mean that land's not still a good investment. So what I got from this is we're going to probably see a little bit of a single digit increase next year. We've got a lot of reasons to be land positive, And our farmer debt situation is up a bit, but not historically. So uh, lots of reasons to be positive for the farm belt and for the land values. And obviously, bankruptcy is put in perspective. What else did I miss the uh, recapping?
1: I think you hit the uh, hit the highlights. Uh, you know, I'm uh, I'm bullish land always have been. Um, I, I heard uh, old farmer you made you made some comments that uh, people make at auctions, and I've, I've had some older farmers, uh, younger farmers always say, "Well, my dad always commented that every acre I bought was always the price was always too much." Yeah. Even when it was five hundred dollars an acre, and now it's worth eight thousand dollars an yep. acre. Five hundred was too much at that time. Yeah. Uh, that's been the history of agriculture. Yes, we had a downturn in the 1980s. Yes, there was a little slippage in 2014, 15. But generally speaking, it has always been an upward trend. Mm-hmm. And so if you think about investing in farmland, you don't day trade agriculture. You might day trade commodities, but you don't day trade farmland. Mm-hmm. If you're going to get into farmland, get in for the long term. And if you're willing to put that money away for five to 10 years, it'll be a phenomenal investment for you. It'll just crank out that income every year, like widgets coming out of a factory, and it'll, it'll generate that long-term historical appreciation. And, oh, by the way, if you like hunting, you like recreational aspects, you like walking on the land, uh, it can bring those other uh, aspects of enjoyment as well.
0: By the way, you said in the and I read it in the notes I was, uh, when I was preparing for this. That's one area that's gone up because the COVID people decided. You know what? It's like they got a little bit shook and they said, "I want my little place out there in a the country where I can walk around with no mask and be away from the the riots." I mean, real estate that's for like hunting and rural properties. You said saw a bump up since March, right?
1: And certainly it has. And low interest rates help that too. But just like we're doing this podcast on Zoom today, Damien, a lot of people have figured out that I can do my job or I can do a, you know, three-fifths of my job yeah. three days out of five yeah. uh, from my home. Yeah. And I don't necessarily want to live in areas where there might be violence, there might be other issues, you know, high-density populations where COVID could be more yeah. uh, prevalent. And so they make the choice because they can now with the technology we have to live in more rural communities. And so we have been in a downward trend in terms of rural residential values because the demographic has been across the country moved to the large urban areas, not necessarily downtowns, but to the larger cultural hubs, Mm -hmm. Phoenix, Indianapolis, you know, those kind of cities. And now, because of COVID, we've seen a little bit of that change. I'm not advocating that it's changed whole, you know, 100%, but we have seen rural residential values and recreational land values really stabilize and move
0: up a little bit. Yeah. I think there's some folks that are going to, they'll get through this cause it's a blip, but there's some folks that said, you know what, we've been looking for a reason to, to, to get out and have our, you know, log cabin in the country or whatever. And now I can work from home. So I agree with that. All right. His name is Howard Halderman. He can, we can talk all day. Cause I like this topic. If they want to look you up for any reason, because they have a real estate question, they want to know about farmland. They want to know about selling grandma's property, whatever it should be. They just want to, uh, you know, ask you something how do they find you
1: uh, the easiest way would be our website and that's www.halderman that's h-a-l-d-e-r-m-a-n.com
0: they go there they can ask
1: us a question they can look at the uh, contact page call our 800 number and, you know, they can find us there pretty easily so yeah. halderman.com
0: you got almost three dozen employees there. Certainly, they probably have somebody that can take care of you. And I appreciate you being a a guest on here, um, uh, and, and and sharing all of your insights and information. A uh, reminder to our listeners and viewers that the business of agriculture is brought to you by Harvest Profit. And you know, Nick Horeb is a good dude. He set out to found a company that could serve clients. And that's what he did. So check out Harvest Profit. If you need a software solution, the new year's coming up. You probably are saying, man, I'm not sure I'm doing everything right. Think about in 2021, re in your software selection and go with Harvest Profit. Go to harvestprofit.com and check, their out. check them out. Mr. Hallerman, thank you. Thank you, Damien.
1: Uh, you guys, you do a tremendous job advocating for agriculture.
0: Well, I know. So- try to educate the people uh, that are in it too. So thank you for saying that. All right. Till next time, it's the business of agriculture.
1: If you've enjoyed this episode of The Business of Agriculture, please share it with your network. Be sure to connect with Damien on LinkedIn, like his Facebook fan page, and follow him on Instagram and Twitter. For speaking inquiries or to purchase Damien's books, Food Fear or Do Business Better, go to DamienMason.com.